God, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning, renew our minds, purify us, make us like Christ, assure us of your grace, even as you convict us of our sin, fill us with love for you and for others, that we can glorify you by our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have any of you guys ever experienced whiplash? Any of you guys know what that feels like? A little bit of whiplash before. Maybe you've been in a car accident. I know in 2013, we totaled our van, and we're in a pretty serious car accident. Maybe you've played a contact sport and experienced a little bit of whiplash. I remember I played basketball at a very small college, and our first, uh, my first game, is preseason game, as a freshman, I ran into a screen that no one called out, and this guy looked like he could have played tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, and every bone in my back cracked because um, I was moving quickly, and then I was not moving. Very short amount of time between those two things. But whiplash happens when you're going along in one direction, and then you come to a very abrupt or complete stop. Um, or, or maybe you get knocked in a completely different direction than what you were going before. And it really doesn't feel good. And it's not good for you either. But maybe some of you have experienced spiritual whiplash before, where you're going along in one direction, and then God stops you dead in your tracks, completely changes your direction. I think we see this happen in the New Testament to the Apostle Paul. He's called Saul in Acts chapter 9. And at that point in his life, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He was a committed opponent to those who follow Jesus. And in Acts 9, he's actually on his way to a city called Damascus because he has a permit to arrest and persecute believers in Jesus. But along the way, a light appeared And it was so bright that it knocked him to the ground and left him blind. And there, the voice of Jesus changed his heart, changed his trajectory. On the road to Damascus, he encountered the Son of God, and he was never the same. Talk about spiritual whiplash. Well, I think the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, it reminds me in many ways of that story with Paul. Jacob is totally unprepared And he's taken by surprise at what he experiences at a place called Bethel. And this experience, it leaves him different. It changes him. It's a key moment in salvation history. Here in Genesis 28, we find that God advances his word and advances his will in a new generation. Abraham has passed on. His son Isaac has now transferred the blessing to the third generation Jacob. Jacob is a key link in the chain that will one day lead to Jesus Christ and salvation for the nations. But this story is not just a key link in salvation history. I believe that what we find here in Genesis 28 also provides a beautiful illustration of the way God always works, the way that he reaches each one of us. In all times, among all people, I think the story of Jacob at Bethel reveals something that's true for all of us. God's undeserved grace to a sinner. I think our own personal experience of God's grace will probably have several parallels with the experience of Jacob at Bethel. So I want to read this story for us. And it starts off to kind of set the scene for this story. Before we understand why Jacob is alone in the wilderness and how he gets there, we kind of have to back up a little bit to the end of chapter 27. And it all becomes clear there. At the end of Genesis 27, starting in verse 46, we are reminded of Esau's murderous intentions. He wants to kill his brother. We're reminded of some miserable marriages. Esau 
has married two different Canaanite women, Hittites, that have made life miserable for the chosen family. And we're also reminded of Rebecca's maternal scheming. She's wheeling and dealing as she has been throughout the entire chapter of 27. So look at verse 46. You remember that what's happened right before this, Jacob and Rebecca together have tricked Isaac and tricked Esau to steal the blessing. He put on his brother's clothes. He, he wrapped his hands and his neck in goat skin, and he served a meal to his blind father so that his blind father would bless him, thinking that he was Esau. Because of that, Esau wanted to kill his brother. Verse 46 of chapter 27, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Jacob had, uh, to recap last week, with the encouragement of his mother, deceived his father, deprived his brother, masqueraded as Esau, stolen the blessing. And although God had promised that the younger son, Jacob, would be the promised heir, Jacob's sinful schemes had earned the hatred of his brother, and Esau was now planning to kill him. He said, I won't do it while my father's alive, but the time for mourning, the time when my father will be off the scene, that's coming soon. And when my dad dies, I'm going to get even. You remember last week we saw that Rebecca urged her son Jacob. She said, you need to flee. Go back to the place where all my family is, back in Padan Aram, to Haran, that city. And there you can find a wife, but you've got to get out of here. Your brother's going to kill you. But here's the deal. Jacob needs to skip town but there's something very important here. It needs, to, it needs to look like he's not abandoning his inheritance. If he leaves the scene, perhaps Isaac and Esau will think, well, Jacob was blessed and promised everything, but he ran away, so maybe Esau will get it all. No, Jacob needs to skip town, but it must not appear like he's abandoning his inheritance. And Rebecca once again comes up with a scheme. Her genius idea is to have Jacob's departure appear to be Isaac's idea. A little bit of psychology going on here, psychological warfare between husband and wife. And the need for a wife for Jacob was a perfect reason. Remember, the Canaanite women were not an option. They were to be judged, and, and the land was to be taken from them and given to Abraham's descendants. Besides that, Esau had married two of the Hittites, and they had made life miserable for everyone. So Rebecca complains about this to her husband, and Isaac immediately offers a solution. He comes up with, with a, a response to her complaint. I have an idea, Isaac says. Let's send him back to Haran to get a wife from your clan. And that's exactly what Rebecca was hoping to hear. That's exactly what she'd anticipated. Jacob would flee from his brother, but under the direction of his father and with his blessing. Notice how Isaac blesses Jacob as he goes out the door. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you. And make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, that's the region, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, 
Jacob's and Esau's mother. The amazing thing about Jacob's parting blessing, not only does he pronounce over Jacob those same promises that were once given to Abraham, but this time Jacob blesses, or Isaac blesses Jacob knowingly and willingly. He's not under the delusion that this is actually Esau. We see here that there's no need for deception. Isaac has given up trying to push his favorite Esau to the forefront. And he declares his hope that God Almighty, the God of his father Abraham, who made such great and precious promises, would bless Jacob and fulfill those covenant promises to Jacob and his offspring. He gives him this blessing, sends him on his way. And then we come to an interesting little parenthesis in this story of Jacob. Notice how Esau responds to all this. It says in verse 6, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and God and Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Esau's efforts here to make things better for himself are really pretty sad. You remember last week we saw that three different times Esau had cried out, Bless me too, Father. Surely you have some blessing left for me. And we see here that he's still not yet given up, trying to get some sort of blessing from his father. But his efforts here are futile. And they reveal the foolishness of his thinking and the darkness of his heart. What Esau does is take a wife from their relatives. He's like, oh, so that's what's supposed to happen? Get a wife from our extended family? Okay, I can do that. And so he goes to Ishmael, who was Isaac's brother. But you remember that Ishmael is outside the covenant family. The promise was given to Isaac and not Ishmael. It's clear here that Esau still doesn't get it. He is, he's completely confused as to what God's purposes are, and he's not in line with that. And besides, he took this woman not in place of his Hittite wives, but in addition to them, thinking if he can just add a little bit of good to the mistakes that he's made, he can somehow balance the scales back out. Like all who try to add good works to their sinful lives, in order to earn salvation, Esau's efforts cannot change his status or his destiny. So that's what happens with Esau. But now the camera sort of pans back to Jacob. And we see in verses 10 through 22, and this is really the focus of the chapter, Jacob's encounter with God. It says that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Jacob is on his way to find a wife, but little does he know God is going to find him first. Now keep in mind at this point, Yahweh, the God of his fathers, is still only the God of his fathers. You remember back in verse 20 of chapter 27, Isaac said, How is it that you found game and returned so quickly? And what did Jacob answer him? He said, because the Lord your God granted me success. Jacob knows that there's a God, and that this God has been with his family, but he's not Jacob's God yet. He has no relationship with him. Jacob is not walking by faith as Abraham had. 
He's not calling upon the name of the Lord as his father Isaac had. He's not walking before him blamelessly as God had instructed his people to do. Yahweh is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, but will he be the God of Jacob? That's still a question that's up in the air. We see here what Jacob does. He gets ready for bed. He gets a stone, picks out a spot to camp, and you have to wonder what Jacob was feeling. He's alone. He'd always been kind of a homebody. He had stayed at home in his tent, been involved in shepherding, but now he's a fugitive, and he's facing a great unknown. His father had spoken these big blessings over him about offspring and land and God blessing him, but he has to wonder if it would all really come true for him because he's no saint. And it was because of his sin that he'd been forced to flee. And everything that had been promised to him for an inheritance, all of his father's wealth, the land and everything in it, he was leaving all that behind him. So he lays down, it says, in a certain place. That word place is kind of a key theme here in this section. It happens, we see this word three times in verse 11 alone, six times in the chapter in general. It's as if the narrator Moses is already anticipating What's going to happen? Jacob is oblivious, but this place is going to become very, very significant. So Jacob arranges a spot to camp, and he goes to sleep. Now notice what Jacob saw, verses 12 through 13. He dreamed, and behold, look, see this. There was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Jacob sees a vision. And what he sees is significant. He sees a ladder that is spanning heaven and earth. Many scholars think that rather than like a ladder as we would think of it with rungs, it was more likely a massive mound, a ziggurat type structure, literally a stairway to heaven, the kind that you would often see in ancient temples that would ascend to the summit where it was believed that man would meet with the gods. And on this stairway to heaven, what does he see? He sees angelic traffic going both directions, going up and coming down. In the Old Testament, angels are often described as God's messengers who have responsibilities of communicating messages from God and protecting those that belong to God and reporting things back to God. We see this in Psalm 91.10. It says, No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In Hebrews 1.14, it says, Are they not all, speaking of the angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? For those who belong to God, there is an angelic bodyguard, as it were. In Job 1, we see that not only are these angels sent out with this responsibility to protect, but they also return and report to God. So as Jacob's eyes trace their way up this massive spectacle, this staircase, the angels going both directions, then he sees the focal point of the entire scene. There at the center, at the top of the staircase, is God himself, supreme, the ruler of heaven and of earth, the one who commands the angels. Jacob can deceive his father, 
Jacob can deprive his brother, but he cannot cheat God. And he is now face to face with God Almighty. That's what Jacob saw. Now notice what Jacob heard. Verses 13 through 15. He not only sees a divine vision, he hears the divine word. In verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It starts off the self-revelation. God speaks, and he begins by announcing his glorious identity. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of your father Abraham and Isaac. This is the one who had called Abraham out of Ur, who had made astounding promises to Abraham, who had entered into a special covenant relationship with Abraham. This is the God whom Abraham had believed, the God whom Abraham had obeyed, before whom he had walked by faith. He's the God of his father Isaac. Isaac was the miraculous son of Abraham and Sarah's old age, the covenant child. He had confirmed the Abrahamic promises to Isaac. God had protected Isaac. God had provided for Isaac. God had blessed Isaac. And now here's the million-dollar question. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Will he be the God of Jacob? Will this covenant relationship continue to the third generation? If it's up to Jacob, you, you have to think that the likelihood of that is pretty slim. We've seen what his character is like. He's a schemer. He's manipulative. He has no relationship with God, no understanding or appreciation for God's promises. But here's the thing. The relationship Jacob will have with God will not depend ultimately upon Jacob. It will depend on God himself. Notice what God says. God promises him a future blessing. God does not offer a rebuke for his scheming. He does not threaten judgment. He promises future blessing. He confirms the covenant promises to Jacob. Everything that had been promised to Abraham and affirmed and confirmed to Isaac is now promised to Jacob. Land, the land of Canaan. The north, the south, the east, and the west, all of it would be his. Offspring, there would be many who would possess and inherit the land. And universal blessing through him. Though he was a cheat, Though he was a schemer, though he was bringing pain and heartache to his family, he would actually be a channel of blessing to the world. These promises now were more than just the words of his father, Isaac. I mean, Isaac had said some of these same kinds of things over him. But now Jacob heard these words from the mouth of God himself. Though he was the younger, even though he was a failure, even though he is now a fugitive, he is now the recipient of the covenant blessings from God. 
Not only does God promise him great future blessing, if you think about that, inheriting all the land and many offspring and blessing all the families of the earth, that's like way down the road, right? That's future. That's far distant future. God doesn't just promise future blessing. He also speaks to Jacob's immediate need in the present in verse 15. Behold, he says, I am with you. I'm with you here, right now. Though you're alone, though you're a fugitive, I am with you. And God's presence will mean God's protection. He says, and I will keep you, literally guard you. He says, I will keep you wherever you go. Whether it's to the, to the city of Haran, whether it's back here to Canaan where your brother wants to kill you, or anywhere in between, Wherever you go, I am with you, and I will keep you. And he says, and I will bring you back to this land. You're coming back here, Jacob. You might be running from home now, but I'm going to make it possible for you to return. I'm going to bring you back here, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What he's not saying is, whenever you come back and all this is fulfilled, then I'm going to abandon you. No, he's saying, I'm going to be with you and see this thing through all the way to the end. And not a moment before. This is what God promises him. He guarantees his divine presence, protection, and assures him success. All that Jacob needs, God will provide. If you look carefully, you see that six times God assures him of what he will do. God says, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. It all depends upon God and his grace and his power and his faithfulness. What an amazing revelation. What we find here is that God has pursued Jacob. That God has initiated relationship with Jacob. That God has confirmed the promises to Jacob and assured him that though he was alone, God would be with him. That though he was in danger for his life, God would protect him. That though he was a fugitive running from home, he would return to the land. Though he had no wife yet, he would have many offspring. Though he was a cheat, he would be a channel of blessing to the world. What an amazing revelation of God's grace. The early church father, Augustine, once wrote that God always pours his grace into empty hands. Your hands don't get much more empty than Jacob's. This is a remarkable demonstration of God's grace towards him. And notice how Jacob responded to all this in verses 16 through 22. First, we see he responded with fear and awe. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Like later Moses would respond at the burning bush. And like the disciples would feel at the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw Christ's glory unveiled, Jacob is filled with fear. This is not just some random place where he decided to park for the night. God is here. This is the house of God. In Hebrew, Beth El, house of God, which would later become the name of that place. Jacob also called it the gate of heaven. Because here he's witnessed the bridging of the gap between heaven and earth. And this realization caused him to tremble, as it should have. He had no idea, but God was in this place. 
He not only responds with fear and awe, but he worships. Look in verses 18 and 19. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. The stone that was being set upright, that that was something that people often did to mark off a boundary or as a memorial. We even still do it today with gravestones. If you were coming through that place and saw this stone set upright, you would know that that rock didn't get that way on its own. Maybe you guys have been hiking before out in Colorado or something like that. Have you ever seen people who pile up rocks, things like that? That's what Jacob is doing here, to mark the spot, to serve as a memorial of something significant that had happened. And he had no sheep or goats to offer. He couldn't build an altar and sacrifice, but what he had, he did offer. He poured out oil to consecrate this stone and offer sacrifice to God. And not only does he worship, but he also makes a vow. Look in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, And will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And this portion can be a little bit difficult to interpret. There are some who see Jacob's response here, this vow, as a poor response. Not a good example for us. There's some who think that Jacob here is kind of negotiating with God, placing conditions on his faith and obedience. God, if you'll scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But I don't think that that's exactly what's happening here. I think this is more than that. I don't think Jacob is offering God a deal. To me, I think that what's happening here is Jacob is actually embracing the promise and committing himself to God. The conditions that he offers, all of the ifs that he says, if God will be with me, if God will keep me, if God will provide for me so that I survive, right? And if God will bring me again to my father's house in peace, God, if you're promising me all this, if this is what's happening right now, then I am yours, And you are my God. The conditions that he offers are not Jacob's invention. This is no foxhole prayer. God, if you'll get me out of this, then I'll serve you. God, if you'll help me figure out how to pay this bill, I'll go to church next week. God, if you'll just heal this broken situation in my life, then I'll serve you and I'll I'll give to some missionaries. I don't think that's what's happening at all. Everything... Every condition that Jacob offers is what God has already promised to do. His commitment to God is based on God's concrete promises. God has made many guarantees to him, and I believe that what Jacob's doing now is receiving God's word and responding by committing himself to God. God, if that's what you're doing for me, then I will worship you and I will praise you and you will be my God. He commits himself to God in light of all that God is doing for him. As a response to God's grace, Jacob here, I believe, embraces God as his God. And although he has nothing to give God now, he promises to tithe to him in the future. God, you're doing all this for me? If you're going to bless me like this, everything that I get, everything that you give, I acknowledge is from you and it belongs to you and I'll give a full tenth back to you. 
He entrusts himself to the promise of God and commits himself to serve and obey God and plans to honor God with all his possessions as a token of his relationship with him. Jacob came to this place, quote unquote, oblivious to the reality of God's presence and God's involvement in his life, but he left a changed man, carrying this promise in his heart, carrying a new hope for the future, and the upright stone would leave a visible reminder of the invisible reality of God's presence and God's power and God's promise. What a life-changing experience for Jacob. But I want to pull out two very important principles this morning for us. If you're taking notes this morning, this is what you can write down. This is, I think, what we can draw from this. I think it's true for all time and all places. Number one, God's grace is revealed in his pursuit of sinners. God's grace is revealed. It's demonstrated. It's manifested. It's shown to us in his pursuit of sinners. We see that in this story. Jacob was not seeking God. But God was seeking him. Guys, this is how grace works. I mean, don't we sing of it? I once was lost, but now I found Christ. No, no, no. I once was lost, you say it, but now am found. Let's go back to middle school English. That's a passive verb, right? That's something that happens to us. God is the one doing the seeking and the finding. We are found. Remember back before you knew Christ. Think about it. Take yourself back there. Maybe you were an adult. Maybe you were a student. Maybe, maybe you were just a small child. Remember back when you were oblivious to God, when you had no desire from him. Remember when you were focused only on self, whether it was in your career or in relationships or whether you were just fighting over toys with your siblings. Remember back to that time When you had no desire for God, you're focused on yourself, focused on the here, focused focused on the now. I want you to consider that time when you became aware of God's presence. Remember what it felt like when you became aware that God was seeking you. Perhaps you experienced a case of spiritual whiplash like Jacob, where you came face to face with your complete need for God, and you surrendered to him and embraced him as your God. Perhaps that was your experience, or perhaps you were slowly and gently drawn through a thousand small steps, but no matter what your story is, the bottom line is that God's grace was revealed to you in his pursuit of you, whether he brought you to that climactic moment, like Paul on the road to Damascus, or whether he gave you godly parents who slowly taught you the gospel at a young age till you were able to understand. In any case, it's God who put all those things into your life to seek after you. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, we don't move first towards God. He moves towards us. And he moves towards us in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And how did he show that love? It says he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent Jesus to die on the cross so that the thing that kept us from being in a relationship with God, our sin, our rebellion, our failure, 
our wickedness so that that could be cleansed and dealt with and removed so that we could call God our God and so that he could call us his child. God's grace is revealed in his pursuit of sinners. And friends, he has pursued us. And that is grace. We we once were lost, but for many of us, praise God, because of his amazing grace, we have now been found. But God's grace is also revealed in his provision for sinners. Not just in his pursuit of sinners, but in his provision for sinners. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel. In this first chapter of John, Jesus is calling disciples. He's seeking after specific men that he wants to follow him. And he's calling a man named Nathaniel. We'll just read the whole, the whole story because it's a really cool story. It says in verse 43 that the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And you have to ask, what could be greater than that? What could be greater than than Jesus knowing what's going on in a place where he's not physically? What can be greater than Jesus knowing the future? What could be greater than one who sees all things in all places? Jesus tells him what is even greater than that. Verse 51, he said to him, truly, truly. That means you better pay attention because what I'm about to say is very, very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know what's greater than one who can see things in other places? One who is able to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. Jesus takes that imagery of Jacob's vision, this this stairway to heaven and the angels, and he says, I am the one who is able to bridge heaven and earth. I am the one who is able to give access to God. I am the one who is able to come down from heaven and reveal God to man. You know, the builders of Babel, earlier in in Genesis, they foolishly thought that they could build a tower to heaven. Do you remember that story? Let us build a tower up to the heavens. And they tried to build a massive staircase, but they couldn't do it. It says that God had to come down and see what they were doing. Man can never bridge that gap. The builders of Babel couldn't, and we can't. 
We are completely and utterly unable to ascend into the presence of God. Instead, God has to come down to us, and he has done so in the person of Jesus. Jesus said, you know that vision? I am the one who's able to connect heaven and earth. Jesus is the link between heaven and earth. Jesus is the gate of heaven. He says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the true temple, the house of God, in whom, Colossians says, the whole presence of God dwells fully. He is the place where we come to meet God himself because he is God in the flesh. God has pursued us despite our sin, but here it's made clear that he's not pursued us so that he could simply ignore our sin and sweep it under the rug. No, God has pursued us and then provided what we needed. And what we needed was access to God. What we needed was forgiveness of sin. What we needed was a new heart and cleansing. What we needed was a new identity to be adopted into his family. And we have all of that in Jesus Christ. He has pursued us and powerfully dealt with our sin once and for all by providing salvation for us in his blood. It's through the blood of Christ that Jesus opens the way for us. When Jesus died on the cross, it says that in that moment that the temple veil was torn, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, signifying that God has now opened the way for man to enter into his presence. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Friends, Jesus has spanned the gap between heaven and earth. Why? Why would Jesus do that? So that God's glory could be accomplished in the salvation of sinners because he loves us, because he loves you. If you believe that and you're excited about it, it's okay to say amen. Without Christ, we have no access. Without Christ, we lack what we need to have a relationship with God. Without Christ, we are far, far from him. Apart from Christ, we are all like Esau outside the covenant blessings and foolishly making futile attempts to try to earn God's blessing, trying to do enough good things, but it will never be enough. But God has provided what we needed in Christ, atonement, access, acceptance, and this is grace. This is grace. And if God has revealed his grace to us by pursuing us, and if God has revealed his grace to us by providing what we need in Christ, what ought our response to be? It should probably look a lot like what Jacob did, don't you think? God's grace ought to produce a response of humble faith, faith that is marked by fear. When Jacob woke up and realized what God had done, realized that God was there, he trembled. Have you ever trembled? Because you realized who God was and what God has done on your behalf. When was the last time you felt that kind of awe? When the holiness of God landed on you that way. You don't have to be in the desert somewhere near Israel in the Middle East. All you have to do is open this book and know that he speaks. Our faith should be marked by fear. Psalm 130 the psalmist writes, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? 
but there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. Friends, when you realize that your sin, that my sin, that we've been forgiven, and then it costs Jesus his blood, that shouldn't cause us to go, great, I guess I can do whatever I want now because I got the get out of hell free card right here. No, when you realize God's grace towards you like that, it should cause you to fear, to fear God. Not that you're afraid of losing his forgiveness, but you realize how much it costs. You realize the wrath that your sin deserves, and you are humbled to the ground to think that God would do that for someone like us. God's grace ought to produce a response of fear in us. It ought to produce worship in us. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. That's what worship is. We proclaim the excellencies of God. We proclaim all that he has done for us. We, we praise God for what he has done, and we tell the world how awesome and gracious and faithful our God is. Does that describe you? Do you worship like that? Not just here in song, but at home in prayer and with your family and among your unsaved friends and family and neighbors. Do they know that we think God is awesome? And do they know why? Are we proclaiming his excellencies? Our faith should be marked by fear, demonstrated in worship, and it should also produce in us commitment. I love 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live, get this, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's commitment. When you recognize all that God has done for us in his grace, you realize, I exist for him. And I am to be all about doing what he calls me to do. And I'm committed because I've recognized and received his love because I love him in return. The love of Christ controls us and produces a radical and complete commitment to him. God's not content to just be like part of our life. Like we're gonna live our lives and oh yeah, we're gonna tip God on the side by helping him out. We'll go to church some and give a little bit and you know, try to be good people. No, God is the end all be all and he demands nothing less. This faith should also produce not just commitment, but active service. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of all that he's done for you, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, a lifestyle of worship and sacrifice to God that serves him and serves others. This is how it affects us. So let me ask you, do you fear? Do you worship are you committed to relationship with God? Are you committed to serving him? Do you give honor to him? Do you delight like Jacob to honor him with your resources? Friends, where there is no fear, where there is no worship, no genuine worship, where there is little service, where there is no wonder or awe, you have to wonder if there's any real grasp of God's grace. You have to wonder if such a person has ever truly encountered God. Is that you this morning? Perhaps today is the day 
God is graciously allowing you to experience some spiritual whiplash. Perhaps today can be the day where your trajectory changes. For those of us who do know him, my prayer for us this morning is that the wonder of his grace towards us would never cease to amaze us and fill us with wonder and fear and awe and love so that we delight to serve him. That we would freshly commit ourselves to him, to obedience and service. That is what God desires in us. That is what God delights to produce in us. God's grace is revealed in his pursuit of sinners, and it's revealed in his provision for sinners. Our response must be one of humble faith, entrusting ourselves to his care, committing ourselves to his promise, and worshiping him for his amazing grace towards us. Bow with me. Let's pray to our God this morning. God, we read the story of Jacob. We read the story of Saul of Tarsus as he's on his way to Damascus. We read the story of Philip, whom you were pursuing and calling to yourself. And we're humbled to think that you would call people like us to be a part of your kingdom, to be children in your family, to be living stones in the temple, the spiritual temple that you are building. Lord, thank you for your grace towards us. You have pursued us. You left the throne of heaven and clothed yourself in human flesh and became one of us so that you could bridge the gap, so that we could have access to the Father, so that our sins could be cleansed and forgiven, so that we could enter into relationship with you. Thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for us. God, produce in us a right response of awe and fear and gratitude and love. Fill us with your spirit. Energize us to serve you and worship you with all that we have and all that we are. And God, if there's any here this morning who don't know you, I pray that today as your word has been opened and proclaimed, that they would sense your presence now in our midst. I pray, God, that their ears would be opened to hear you speaking to them, saying, come, come to me. Believe in me, repent of your sin, and receive by grace alone, through faith alone, the gift of salvation that comes through Christ alone. I pray, God, that you would save sinners today and make them saints, make them part of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.